0: Hey there, this is Jesse Bout, oldest grandson to Klaus Stell, and the producer of this little feature. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved the oral tradition of storytelling, whether it was my dad making up stories at bedtime, my mom reading me stories about Middle Earth, or even just today with my love of audiobooks. So when my opa Stell wrote Memories of an Immigrant Kid, my first thought was that future generations deserve to hear the author read this to them in an audiobook format. We recorded this at the old Stell Cottage in Bancroft, Ontario, and throughout the recording, you might hear kids playing and babies wailing, but anyone who knows Klaus knows that he's a family man. So, in a way, it felt appropriate not to work too hard to edit it out. I hope that you'll enjoy Tales of an Immigrant Kid as much as I have. So, without further ado, here's Opa Memories of an Immigrant Kid by Klaus Stell to my six special girls, my wife, Anne, and daughters, Christy, Sharon, Maria, Holly, and Rachel, and our 25 grandchildren. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O oh God, how great is the sum of them. Psalm 139, verse 17. As our kids were growing up, I often told them stories of my youth in Holland and in Canada. Not content to leave this simply as an oral tradition, they suggested that I should at some time put it in writing for the amusement of future generations. Not that my history is unusually interesting or dramatic, but true to the old saying that it's how you tell the story, these stories gained a certain popular notoriety with our family. Of course, the real danger of repeatedly applying this adage is that over time these stories become a little distorted and exaggerated. So, any reading of these pages will have to be done with a few grains of salt. Since a picture is worth a thousand words, I thought I would throw in some little sketches, especially for the benefit of my younger readers. On that basis, I calculate that I have saved myself about 45,000 words, something I'm sure you'll all appreciate. My Early Years in Holland my earliest memories of the first five years that i spent in holland are rather foggy mixed up with other people's stories old pictures and even some romantic wishful thinking i'd like to imagine for instance that i spent my childhood exploring picturesque windmills sailing wooden shoes in the local canal or fishing from an old dock or rowboat all of these things were like little scenes from the van der Hulst books which were among our favorites as we were growing up. Thinking about books also reminds me about two other favorites that my mother would read to us. One about a rather fat, jolly fellow named Dick Trom, and a skinny Dennis the Menace-type character named Peachabelle. Bell. Both chaps had a real knack of getting into mischief, perhaps a little foreshadowing of my own life. I was the youngest of five sons born into the Stell family, December the 18th, 1946. So you can imagine that it was a bit of the survival of the fittest in the post-war and immigration years. Early on, I was probably not the fittest or the fastest, but in the teen years, I outgrew my brothers by about five or six inches, giving me the distinct advantage of a better view and a longer reach seemed especially odd considering My Dear Mum and Dad, or in the Frisian language, Mem and Height, not to be confused with Height, H-E-I-G-H-T, who were not much beyond five feet tall, giving support to the old saying about how weeds always seemed to prosper. In those days, children all bore the names of close relations, starting with the name of the father's dad, or father's mum in case of girls, the next son was named after the mother's dad, next dad's oldest brother, then mum's oldest brother, and so on. I trust you get the picture. This often led to the awkward situation of many in the extended family having the same names. To distinguish who was who in this complex scene, we would specify to which tribe this child belonged. Thus, I was class, me from Klaas, my dad, and Johanna, my mom. The confusion grew worse when the child's name was the same as the parent, as in my case. Then we had to make further specifications like grote or big, Klaas, and Kleine, or small, Klaas. This worked for a number of years until I grew to be about 10 inches taller than my dad. Then the descriptions were reversed anyone confused yet? For reasons a little too complex to explain, even though I was the youngest of the family, I was named after my mother's oldest brother, my own or uncle, Klaas van der Fein. This man had emigrated to Alberta as a widower with 10 children, and who through his long life had four wives, not all at the same time, It was sometimes interesting to look for similarities between a child and the one he was named after. I'm not sure about character or personality, but on this point of children and wives, we differed considerably. My wife, Anne, and I had half his number of children, and I've been quite happy with one quarter of his number of wives, so do the math. Of course, we all had Dutch names, and these were, in order, Rumpke, Philippus, Chert, Schauke, and me, Klaas. Shortly after our arrival in Canada, because of the obvious pronunciation problems, my brothers all adopted Canadian names of their choice Ron, Phil, Charlie, and Joe. But for some strange reason, probably good old Frisian stubbornness, I never changed mine. Some folks have kept up the tradition of passing on their old Dutch names to their children or grandchildren. The closest we got in our family was a grandson's second name, Jordan Claas. enter. Oh, well, maybe the great-grandkids will correct this sad deficiency. One of my most distinct memories of that time was of a beautiful old forest close to our town called Bus which had lovely pathways winding beneath ancient oaks and elms. There was even an enclosure where deer were kept that really enjoyed the peppermints we would feed them on occasion. But there was also something sinister in this idyllic setting. Deep in the forest was a spooky old hut, and inside the gloomy interior, sitting stooped over a table, was an old hermit, in a hooded robe. Now, this was just a dummy, of course, but you may well imagine how the sight of this figure in this setting would send chills up the spine of any young child. Parents in the neighborhood made use of this old man in the hut when it came to disciplining their children. Minor infractions were dealt with by means of the mataklapper, or that's a rug-beater, applied to the backside, But the ultimate corrective was the threat that we would be taken for a visit to the hermit. That fearful prospect usually gave cause for some sober second thought. An interesting sidelight to this story is that when Brother Joe and I visited that same old forest about 60 years later with our wives, the old man was still sitting there like a real dummy. The deer was still there as well probably different generation, and we even fed them some peppermints. Immigration. Much has been written about the post-World War II migration of Dutch settlers to various parts of the world, including my dad's book, To the Land of Hopes and Dreams. The reasons for this move were probably not very clear to a five-year-old lad, except that it seemed like a huge adventure. Our cruise ship was called the Kreis or Southern Cross, one of a number of old converted troop ships pressed into service to take the flood of immigrants to the New World. We made the voyage in March of 1952, a time of year when the North Atlantic was notorious for its winter storms. As a result, most people on board were pretty seasick spending a good deal of time leaning over the ship's railing, feeding the fish, if you know what I mean. Occasionally, some dentures were included in the menu. I can still remember an incident during a particularly rough period when a couple of waiters who were bringing in a large pot of soup to the dining room lost their footing and went rolling down the steps into the dining area. I heard later that the old tub had taken such a beating that the pumps had to be kept going constantly to keep us afloat. In the book To All My Children, special mention is made of this trip and recounts that several people felt sure that the boat was doomed and they were bound for a watery grave. Among the younger ones on board, who were more given to flights of imagination, the story was told that a whale's tail had put a huge hole in the bottom of the ship. The stormy weather wasn't all bad, at least for a healthy kid like me. I enjoyed rolling peppermints from one side of the deck to the other as the ship was heaving through the rough seas. Aren't peppermints wonderful things? Not just church food. At any rate, or at least a very slow one, we finally made it to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where we disembarked and the ship was put into dry dock for repairs. From Halifax, it was a long journey by train to Toronto. I'm sorry to say that I don't remember a thing about this trip, which must have traveled through some pretty great Canadian landscapes. Later in life, during a summer break from university, I took the train from Toronto to Vancouver. So I guess that I can honestly say that I've traveled from coast to coast on the big steel rail our first home Stouffville Ontario on arrival in Toronto we were introduced to Mr. Hutchinson a large impressive looking farmer from the Stouffville area who was to be our sponsor I believe the arrangement was that dad would work for him for a year in return for a small wage and some basic housing The basic housing turned out to be a small ramshackle cottage with few amenities. It would have appealed to the fans of Little House on the Prairie. This was still a great deal better than what many immigrants had to face. Friends of our parents found that their first home was an old chicken coop. Actually from a kid's point of view, our home was a place ripe for adventure, surrounded by woods and fields, a stream and even a small dump of sorts, the kind you come across occasionally in rural Ontario. It was a great place for treasure hunting. Scrap metal, broken porcelain, and old plates found new uses in our active imaginations. Our dear homesick mom could always be cheered up with a nice arrangement of weeds in a slightly abused vase, and the old plates made great steering wheels for our make-believe cars. Who needs Toys R Us? There was an amazing artesian spring near this place, which later became the fountainhead for many beautiful residential ponds in the area. On a later nostalgia tour, I seem to remember that our little shack in the wilderness had been replaced by a lovely mansion complete with landscaped pond out front. Second home in Zephyr, Ontario. After about one year, my dad and mom had scraped enough money together to make a down payment on a small farm near Zephyr, somewhere east of Newmarket. This was pretty heady stuff for our family, our own home and barn, and on top of it all, we soon got our own horse. This animal was not meant for recreational purposes, but to help with the farm work in place of a tractor, much like the Amish and Mennonites do to this day. Unfortunately, it soon became obvious that he was much better suited for racing and jumping, a regular northern dancer who was a famous racehorse of that period. I can still picture him tearing across the field with a plow and my dad in tow. His jumping ability seemed to us little kids to be nothing short of amazing. No matter how high we raised the fencing for his enclosure, he always managed to jump out. He was obviously not meant for farm labor and was soon sold to someone who recognized his special talents. He probably went on to win the Queen's Plate. It was at Zephyr that I had my first and second experience with broken bones. The way I remember it, I give this reservation because I think Brother Joe remembers it differently, was that one day I was pushing him on an old homemade wagon when he somehow fell backward onto my arm. After a few days of pain, we decided to go to a hospital where an X-ray revealed a fractured bone. It was pretty exciting coming home like a real hero with a nice plaster cast. As far as I can remember, that despite our rough and tumble lives, I was the only one in the family ever to break any bones. Like all caste owners, I was probably a little proud of that trophy for a little while, but as the heat of summer approached, it became extremely uncomfortable and irritating. I was constantly scratching underneath it with sticks and wires. Dear Dad, hating to see his son suffer and figuring that the bone was sufficiently mended, took a saw. And cut it off Uh, not the arm but the cast that is that turned out to be a bad idea a couple of days later as I was running around the yard I slipped on some wet grass and got to experience a really good break this time the bone was totally broken and required a cast from my shoulder to my fingertips and a rather frightening overnight stay in the hospital dad was persuaded to leave future surgeries to the professionals. It was also at Zephyr that I had my first taste of school. The number one stands out in this experience. I was in grade one, perhaps even the only one in that grade. It was a one-room schoolhouse, approximately one mile from our house. And what was most remarkable, the teacher was a one-armed veteran from World War II. I don't remember much about the early attempts to learn the three Rs, but I do recall that our teacher enjoyed taking us on nature studies in the woods and fields around the school. Nothing about the flora and fauna stands out in my mind, but I'm sure like any kid, I enjoyed the time away from my desk. Our attempt at homesteading lasted about one year. The combination of poorly drained soil, wrong crop and lack of money for proper equipment put an end to dad's dreams of being a market gardener. And except for raising a few chickens or pigs occasionally and always keeping a great vegetable garden, he never again attempted to make farming a career. In another nostalgia tour years later, we learned that the new owners had drained the land and with modern equipment and specialized market had made our place a very successful enterprise. The old farmhouse had been replaced by, yes, you guessed it, a fine mansion. I guess mansions were just not meant for us. Our next home was certainly not a mansion, but an old farmhouse on Briggs Avenue in the country near Richmond Hill. We rented the front portion of the house from Mr. Briggs himself, an elderly retired farmer who lived in the back portion while a family of skunks occupied the crawl space underneath. Our washroom was an outhouse in the backyard, not too far from the pump and well, which was our water supply. I'm not sure it was the required minimum distance between these facilities, but we never seemed to suffer any ill effects. An old barn was located right opposite the front yard of the house, and was a source of endless delight for adventuresome boys. Without being too unkind, I think it's fair to say that Mr. Briggs was a rather grumpy old sort, probably made that way by a rowdy bunch of wild kids who didn't fit into his dreams of a peaceful retirement. More about that later. The skunks were worse neighbors. One day, when we came home from church, we were met by one of the clan who had somehow made his way into the small entrance area in front of the house. As soon as Dad opened the door, hmm, well, you can imagine the rest, or smell it. There was a popular notion that if you washed the sprayed material in tomato juice and buried it for a while, all would be well. Maybe they should have specified that it had to stay buried. I'm not sure Mom ever tried this cure, but I'm pretty sure that suit never went back to church. At any rate, this was the declaration of war with all the skunks. We somehow chased them out from under the house and they retreated to the barn. Dad handed out some pitchforks and stationed us at different openings with orders to impale the varmints as they tried to escape while others went in after them. I can't recall exactly what happened. I think I was petrified with fright and any skunk that came my way simply fled between my legs. I don't remember my brothers being any more successful than me. I believe a neighbor with a shotgun later finished them off when they fled into a culvert. Down the street from our house, there lived a boy about my age by the name of Jimmy Kremen. This lad was so full of mischief that uh, when telling about his exploits later on to my daughters, we referred to him as Jimmy criminal. Whenever I think of Jimmy and his relationship to me, I think about the verse from 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three: evil company corrupts good morals. For I think a long acquaintance with him would not have been helpful to my developing character. There, but for the grace of God go I. Jimmy was the son of a war bride, a young Dutch girl who, in a moment of youthful ardor, had married a Canadian soldier during the liberation of Holland. These men may have been heroes of the war, but were sometimes less than heroic husbands. I seem to remember a rather unhappy marriage, and not uncommon story. Jimmy was full of crazy schemes, and because he was a rather intimidating character, I often ended up being an accomplice in his pranks. I mentioned that the old barn was across the yard from our house, and the front door of Mr. Briggs' place was right opposite the barn loft, which had an opening to the yard. One day we tied a rope to the doorknob of his house, while we crouched in the loft with the other end. Poor Mr. Briggs was confined to quarters for some time that day, as we slammed the door shut every time he tried to open it. Another time, as we were sneaking around the back of the house, we noticed that Mr. Briggs' back window was open because of the heat of the day. Just inside the window was the open back of the old TV cabinet. Outside the window was a nice pile of doggy-do. Well, that criminal took a little plank and neatly deposited that pile into the back of the TV while Mr. Briggs was snoring away in his recliner. I imagine him saying later on to a friend, that hockey game last night was a real stinker. One prank that he pulled, I'm actually a little ashamed to talk about. It wasn't as stinky, but it certainly was more dangerous. Jimmy had gotten a hold of a good-sized firecracker with what must have been a pretty long fuse. He placed it under the crib of his baby sister as she was peacefully sleeping and led the fuse out through the window. Well, I will leave the rest to your imagination. Thankfully, the baby was fine, but needless to say, Jimmy's mom was ready to administer some pretty serious discipline after she found us hiding out in the chicken coop. I know you're probably thinking, how could you ever be a party to this kind of behavior? Well, as I said, Jimmy was a pretty forceful personality, and probably I was too cowardly to stop him. I'm not sure ever happened to Jimmy. We never had a Briggs Avenue reunion but I'm pretty sure he would never be considered a candidate for the boy most likely to succeed, except perhaps in a life of crime. Happily, before his influence could do lasting damage, we moved to our next home, Palmer Avenue, Richmond Hill. I must have been about eight years old when we moved to our new location, Palmer Avenue, in Richmond Hill, and we lived there until the end of my grade school years. Our house wouldn't have won any architectural awards, but it was pretty exciting for us because it was our first brand new home. This, of course, provided my dad with all kinds of landscaping and gardening opportunities, things he really enjoyed. It was interesting to see the contrast that developed between our yard and our neighbors to the right. Their name was Hogg, and it certainly seemed to fit rather well. There were piles of dirt and weeds and junk strewn about and a general appearance of neglect. It was an improvement on skunks in terms of odor, but it didn't enhance the nice landscaping job Dad was doing in our yard. On our left side lived the Paxmans, and it was particularly their son, Richard, who shared many of our adventures during the next few years. Happily, Richard was no criminal like Jimmy, But he was a young boy, and as the old saying goes, boys will be boys. Brother Joe and Richard and I, sometimes Charlie, formed a bit of an informal club. And, of course, that called for the construction of a clubhouse. This structure was built in our backyard with old boards from a lumberyard across the back field from our house. These were bought or borrowed temporarily but most likely just taken from their junk pile. As far as I can remember, our fort had three floors, of which the top one was our smoking room. Now, before you get too horrified, I'd better explain. Our cigars were actually cattails gathered from a swampy area close to the railway tracks that ran along the end of Palmer Avenue. These cattails were dried and would be lit at one end and slowly smolder away, while we stuck the reed end in our mouth. No inhaling of smoke was involved, but we felt pretty grown up sitting around with a big stogie sticking out of our face like Winston Churchill. While I'm on the subject of smoke, I had better relate the story of the field fire Richard and I started across the street from our house. It was a warm summer day with a good breeze blowing, a field with lots of long dry grass, and two young boys with a box of matches. Pretty ominous mixture. It started out as a bit of a game, setting alight a small patch and stomping it out before it spread too far. The challenge, of course, was to see how big we could let that patch get before we started stomping. You can probably guess what happened. Our last patch got uncontrollably large, and as the wind picked up, the flames started to race wildly toward a group of new houses just being built at the far end of the field. By this time, I'd become pretty good at making a quick getaway, so Richard and I took off for a hiding place in our fort as the sound of fire trucks could be heard in the distance. Happily, the houses were spared, and as far as I can remember, I was spared from any consequences. I can't even recall telling my parents about it, although it's just the kind of thing you might want to brag to your friends about after the dust or the ashes have settled. The field did look nice and green that summer after all the dead grass had been burned off. The local school we attended was Sir Walter Scott Public School, and I can still remember some of the teachers quite well. Mr. Dodds, my grade six teacher, appeared to be a kind, mild-mannered man, but he had the nasty habit of throwing chalk across the room, occasionally at unwary students. You must remember that this was in the days before child abuse and lawsuits became part of our regular vocabulary. Along this line, I might just mention a high school teacher that I had later on by the name of Mr. Brown, who would quietly make his way around the classroom while we were diligently working and occasionally give the guys a cuff on the back of the head and the girls a little hug. One day as I was working away, I felt this cuff to the head with the words, Sit up, fat head. Do you want to grow up and ring bells in Notre Dame? An obvious reference to my hunched back. Happily, he was not my guidance counselor. Mr. Wheeler, grade 8, was another strong believer in spare the rod and spoil the child. Fortunately, I never did experience the dreaded strap, but that didn't mean my grade school days were without pain. The school playground was often the place where the tough guys were looking for a good scrap. I think they call it bullying these days. I seemed to be a special target for some of this treatment. Perhaps I was considered by some to be a teacher's pet because I would often do special art projects for them. I actually hated fighting, especially with fists. So in order to survive, I developed a special move that probably wouldn't make it into any martial arts manual, but it got me out of many a tight spot. For lack of a better term, I'll call it the slip out and dump move. As we were getting into a clutch, I would lure my opponent into attempting a headlock, a popular hold. And as they made their move, I would quickly slip behind them, grab them around the waist and throw them down. This sounds rather bizarre, as I explain it, but it always worked remarkably well, especially if my opponents were not too heavy. During one of our brotherly disputes, not too infrequent, I actually made this move on my brother Charlie, and he quickly lay at my feet, momentarily stunned. When he came around, he warned me with a rather frightening look that I had better not go to sleep that night, for it might be my last. It sure wasn't one of my better nights, Listening to every creak and crack, I believe Charlie never slept more soundly. Sweet revenge. The playground also had its lighter side and some interesting traditions. Fall was the season for chestnut conquers. I'm not sure this is the right name for this game. As the name would suggest, the game was played with chestnuts that were suspended at the end of a string. Competitors would stand across from each other taking turns holding up their chestnut while the opponent would attempt to smash it with their own. This would go back and forth until one emerged the victor. If occasionally the swinging chestnut came down on your knuckles, it was simply one of the hazards of war. Springtime was the season for marbles, the simple goal being to add to your collection through a variety of individual or group competitions. I don't remember ever buying a single marble, but by the end of my grade school years I owned a rather large bag full. These were primarily games for the boys. The girls had their own activities like skipping, double dutch, jumpsees, etc. I'm not sure if any of these games are still around today, but somehow they seem a lot more harmless than video games and smartphones. Another Walter Scott tradition was the annual speech contest an event taken very seriously by many of the staff and students, probably seeing it as good training for future political careers. We first gave our speech in front of our class, and then the best of those advanced to the big general assembly in the school auditorium. Winners from there went on to further glory in regional and provincial competitions. I claim no oratorical skills or ambitions, in fact, Like most kids, I considered advancing beyond the classroom as something to be avoided like the plague. But at the grade 7 level, I gave a speech that was considered worthy as a little humorous interlude between the more important presentations, and found myself with shaky knees and sweaty palms in front of the whole school. Happily, that's where my ordeal ended. Now, I know what you are all thinking. What was this great speech about? Now let me say right off that it's another example of how you tell the story that really matters. It was the account of a little hunting incident that happened during the previous winter. A man down the street was a hunter and he would occasionally ask a couple of boys to join him for a little rabbit hunting with real guns that he provided. This sounded pretty exciting to a fellow whose only hunting experience had been with pitchforks and skunks After a considerable drive, we found ourselves deep in the northern woods with hunting dogs and guns, eagerly looking for the elusive snowshoe rabbits. Now, these creatures have been created with a wonderful protective camouflage. Their brown coat of summer turns into a nice snowy white in winter, making them rather difficult to spot. We had gone in different directions and on seeing a clear rabbit trail in the snow, I placed myself in a small thicket, waiting for old bugs to come along. Sure enough, it wasn't long before he hopped into sight, and the big moment had arrived. You're probably thinking, Oh, no, you're not going to shoot that cute little bunny, are you? Well, to be honest, I certainly intended to. After all, why had we come all this way? And why was I squatting in this cold, uncomfortable spot, freezing my buns if not to bring home this beast for rabbit stew and besides my hungry family was depending on me with trembling hands and sweaty brow i lined up my shot and nervously squeezed the trigger but instead of a blast from my shotgun the only sound to be heard was a small click old bugs rather than fall down dead turned to me with that what looked like a small, scornful smile. I could almost hear him saying, Ah, what's up, doc? So, what happened, you ask? The simple lesson is that you can't shoot much if you don't load your gun. It's a good thing I wasn't facing a charging rhino in the heart of Africa. It was back to Budunkol for supper. These were also the years that I started to enjoy art, and so... An increasing amount of time was spent drawing and painting. I believe it all started when, at about the age of 10, someone gave me a paint-by-numbers set. I quickly found that trying to stay within the lines was not only a very difficult thing, but also very restrictive, although I have been amazed at some of the beautiful results produced by some of our grandkids. I don't claim to have exceptional talent, but I do subscribe to the view expressed by Thomas Edison Genius is 1% inspiration, or talent, and 99% perspiration, time and effort. On the basis of that simple formula, I started to acquire some proficiency. As already mentioned, some of my artistic efforts drew, pun intended, some attention at school. One of my teachers, considering me some sort of child prodigy, suggested to my parents that I really should take special art classes. I'm not sure who arranged it all, but one evening I found myself with my little homemade box of oil paints sitting among a group of elderly ladies, waiting for my first painting lesson. To suggest that I felt a little out of place would be a serious understatement. The subject of our artistic endeavors was to be a nice bowl of fruit. A still life, you'd call it. It seemed to be a good fit for this group of seniors, but for a young boy who loved pictures of animals, ships, and grand landscapes, this was a bit of a shock. Also a little shocking was the amount of paint these ladies squeezed onto their palettes, not light little dabs that I normally used for the sake of economy. Needless to say, the whole experience was a bit of a disaster, and even though the dear ladies were sweet and Tried to be helpful, I decided after one class to just continue to do my own thing at home. In a little side note to this story, I should relate that I still have a recycled canvas of that period, which demonstrates how thrifty we were in those days, and probably still are. It shows a ship in full sail, and a careful examination will reveal some ghostly images of that fruit bowl still visible in the background. Actually, I'm still pulling the same stunt. One of my latest paintings is on the back of a beautiful floral still life that Holly picked up for me at the thrift store. She bought it for the sake of the frame, but I sure didn't want to waste a good canvas. So I painted my own picture on the back. This has the added advantage of giving the owner a reversible option for varying artistic tastes. Our home was on the south side of the town with some interesting features in the countryside beyond. I've already mentioned the railroad track, which ran about a hundred yards from our house. It was a rather busy track being the main line running north parallel to Young Street from Toronto. There has always been something fascinating about trains and railroads, and I still enjoy the sounds of the early morning trains that can be heard from our home in Grimsby. It always conjures up memories of distant places and endless horizons. Brother Phil was so enamored with trains that in his later years, he created a beautiful model train display in a special room he built in his attic. The trains close to our house in Richmond Hill, ran regularly through the night and would often form a part of my dreams, sometimes of train wrecks or other disasters. I remember that after moving away from the area, I would often wake up at the times the train was due to come by, wondering if there had been an accident of some sort. We would take long rambles down the track, sometimes seeing how far we could walk the rails. Placing things on the tracks for the train wheels to crush was also entertaining, especially pennies. I don't think our small rocks and things would have caused any real hazard but I'm not sure CN would have been amused. Down the tracks to the south of town, about one mile away, was the Dunlop Observatory. An observatory, for those unfamiliar with these things, is a building with a domed roof that can open up to allow a huge telescope to observe the heavens, stars, planets, etc. Even though we never had the opportunity to go inside, This place always held a great fascination for us. It appeared eerie and slightly scary, almost like an alien spaceship, especially when approached on a moonlit night through the trees during one of our evening rambles. Another nighttime ramble led to one of the most frightening experiences of my young life. In fact, it was literally a nightmare. Not far from the observatory was a large pasture where horses from a nearby farm were often grazing right through the night. It was on one of those fine summer evenings when I and a few friends, I think Joe and Charlie were also along, thought we might have a closer look at these horses. They seemed gentle and friendly enough as we quietly moved among them. Someone suggested that it might be fun to sit on one and get the cowboy feeling. I'm not sure how I came to be selected, but before I realized the danger, I found myself hoisted on the back, of what seemed to me to be an enormous creature. There was no saddle, no reins, nothing to grab onto, but his mane. I'm not sure how it happened, whether it was a little playful slap on the rump from one of my friends, or the smell of oats in the barn, but suddenly that beast took off at a great gallop. It was a pretty desperate situation for a skinny 12-year-old kid, totally unfamiliar with a runaway horse. I'm not sure how I managed to stay on. I was desperately hanging on to his mane while sliding from side to side. The horse seemed to be heading for the lights of some distant farm buildings. But I wasn't wasting too much energy thinking about the consequences if I should by some miracle arrive there in one piece. By some amazing design of providence, there was a small muddy stream meandering through the field between the charging horse and the buildings. As we arrived at the bank of this stream, my noble steed, for reasons known only to a horse, suddenly stopped. At this point, basic laws of inertia kicked in, and I went sailing over his head into the soft mud below. Oh, what boundless joy and relief. Sure, I was wet and muddy, but no broken bones, no criminal charges, or who knows what. It was one of the many instances in my life. Of God's loving care. I can't remember how we explained all this to my long suffering parents, or if we even told them about it. Another thing lost to the mists of time. Humber's Summit. It was the year that I was entering high school, probably about age 13, that we made one of our most important moves, at least in terms of how it impacted my life personally. Our beautiful new home, not a mansion, but getting closer in our eyes was on Riverside Drive in Humber Summit in the northwest area of Toronto. These were the coming-of-age years with things like higher education, career decisions, cars, and even girls entering the picture. Whoops, wait a minute. I never looked at a girl until I was 18. At least, that's what I always told my own girls. Actually, I do seem to recall a vague memory of a little redheaded girl somewhere around age 12. But I'm sure my grandkids aren't really interested in hearing about any mushy stuff. Besides, I was too occupied with hobbies to think about much else. My hobby list had expanded beyond painting to include carving and even model boat building. After reading Mutiny on the Bounty when I was about 15, I became quite intrigued with the idea of trying to build a model of the bounty. I just had a little picture from the book cover to go on, but with an old block of wood provided by my dad, I started chopping and rasping and sanding so that after a few weeks of cuts and scraped knuckles, it started to take shape. When I had the hull of the boat roughly completed, I realized the rigging was much more complex than the small picture could show. So I headed for our high school library. I discovered a great book entitled Oars, Sail, and Steam, which had a nice detailed picture of what I needed. In a side note, I ended up having to pay for the book after a piece of stained rigging fell on the open pages. I actually didn't mind because it was a nice addition to my library. One year later, after a lot of trial and error with sewing sails, carving masts, and making rope ladders. The project was completed. I think I still have a picture of myself suitably christening the ship with the traditional bottle of champagne or Coke. All through the years, I have bravely defended this rather vulnerable piece of work from Oma's dusting wand and vacuum cleaner and the eager young fingers of children and grandchildren. Today, almost 60 years later, 2020, it still survives and is displayed in the bay window of our dining room. I do honestly pity the family that will inherit this thing. Maybe we should do everyone a favor. Have a family gathering at Ball Harbor Beach. Set the old tub adrift. And with a grand bombardment of beach rocks, watch it sink majestically beneath a gentle swell. Wouldn't that be swell? Did I hear someone say, no way, that would be lousy? Another year long project that took about three hours of spare time every evening after doing my homework was a five foot by 20 foot mural for the high school I attended, Emory Collegiate. This was when I was in grades 12 and 13. The story of how I got involved in this project is too lengthy for this epistle, but after about one year, it was finally completed. And at a special assembly and unveiling of this masterpiece, I received what is called a creativity award. I don't remember the size of the check, but if I was to put it against the time spent, it would probably work out to about 10 cents per hour. Because I painted the whole thing on my knees in the basement of our home, a short newspaper account at the time described me as the artist with calluses on his knees. This is perhaps part of the reason that I struggle with knee problems at this stage of my life. An interesting conclusion to this story is that years later, when we were going to show some relatives this mural, we found out that it had mysteriously disappeared and every attempt to find out what happened to it led to a dead end. I would like to thank that it is now hanging in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, along with some other Dutch masters. Smile but it's more likely gathering dust in some furnace room, or perhaps it became fuel for the furnace. And now that my grandchildren are winning great accolades for Remembrance Day poster contests, I should just relate an amusing story of an annual fireman's poster contest that happened during my high school years. As one of the winners, I received a very handsome trophy of a mounted fireman with a small plaque on the base indicating that I had won fourth place. This was proudly displayed in a cabinet in our home and moved with us to various locations, even after marriage. Somehow, over time, in my mind, the fourth-place finish advanced to a first place, and I would brag about it in that light. Probably a response to some deep psychological wound to my ego. At any rate, at a family dinner one evening as we were talking about it, One of our daughters removed it from its shelf for a closer look. Well, when she read the fine print on the plaque, we all had a pretty good laugh. I think for my benefit, we had humble pie for dessert. Needless to say, that trophy, not so mysteriously, also disappeared. Although, it might have been good to keep it for my own personal hall of shame. And while we are in that location, I might mention one more Emory memory, my great pole vaulting triumph. Emory was a young and very small school. In fact, I was in the first grade nine class. This meant that it was not difficult to win athletic competitions within the school, but there was generally little opportunity to shine in the larger interscholastic matches. I wasn't a great sports guy as you can conclude from my listing of hobbies. But the annual track and field events were something in which we all had to participate and was part of the regular school schedule. I think it was about grade 12 when our gym teacher challenged us to try a new event, which neither he nor anyone else had ever tried before, the pole vault. He brought out some aluminum poles about 12 feet long, set up the bar, and without a hint or suggestion of a method, simply told us to give it a try. Well, it may have brought out some latent memories of Holland in me, where they often use poles to jump over ditches and waterways, but somehow I caught onto the thing a little quicker than the others. At the end of the day, I found myself the undisputed pole vault champion of the school, with the record-setting height of eight feet. It almost takes your breath away. I think some guys today jump higher than that without a pole in the high jump. This achievement meant, of course, that I had the dubious privilege of advancing to the regional competitions. The glory bubble from Emory was soon burst when they started the par at eight feet, and I was the first competitor eliminated. I did have the distinction of competing against a future Canadian champ named Bob Raftus, who on that day popped over the bar at about 13 feet using a fiberglass pole. Always nice to think that I was right up there with the greats. Yes, sirree, me and old Bob. Let me just insert a little side note here uh, that was kind of interesting. Our dear grandson Jesse thought he would explore if old Bob still existed somewhere, and he actually tracked him down in Kingston, Ontario. He and his wife, Chloe, even had a cup of coffee uh, with him one day. And today I am the proud owner of an autographed picture of Bob uh, doing one of his amazing jumps. However, the day's embarrassments were not quite over. By virtue of my placing second in the 440, that's a one-quarter mile or once around the track, I was also entered in that event. Now, normally at our school, this race was run at a reasonably quick jog. Imagine my shock, when at the sound of the gun, the whole crew took off, like a shot, as if they were running the 100-yard dash, leaving me in the dust. I think they were setting up for the next race by the time I finally reached the finish line, last place again. Oh well, back to the drawing board and the painting easel. I think these last humbling stories are a good place to end this short chronicle of my younger years. Even though these memories have been on the lighter side, I want to end by acknowledging God's wonderful providential care through those years. Despite all my faults and foolishness, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That's Psalm 103, verse 10. This is something we don't often think about until we reach a certain plateau. And from that perspective, look back and see his loving hand in all the twists and turns of the road. I'd like to conclude with a couple of verses from one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 16, 6 and 11. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The end.